contractors and the Defense Department components alike are delving deep to understand the White House budget proposal for 2024. The Pentagon introduced its biggest ever proposed budget earlier this week. It's asking for $842 billion. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr joins us now with a look below the top-line numbers. And before we go into those, Alex, just review the basic top-line numbers that have been rolled out that people are starting to peel back. All right. Thanks, Tom. So as you said, it's $842 billion overall, and that's $26 billion more than the enacted budget for 2023. Uh, in the Navy, which includes the Marines, so that's the Department of the Navy, their 2024 budget request is $256 billion. Uh, that's a 4.5% rise from the enacted budget last year. The Air Force is looking for $259 billion. That's 215 for the Air Force and another 30 for Space Force. That's $9 billion beyond last year's enacted budget. And the Army has a 2024 budget request of $185.5 billion which is 4.6% increase over last year's enacted budget. The totals for the Army reflect both the active duty forces, the Army Reserve, and the Army National Guard and their overseas operation costs. So I guess the days are long past when we had those 40 and 50 and 60 billion overseas contingency operations requests. The slush fund, as they used to call it. Well, these things go back and forth, don't they? All right. And some of the trends. I mean, what are we discerning now? What does this all mean except for, yes, more, but everything in the government is up for 2024? So one of the things that I think you and I have talked about a fair amount anyway is recruiting. Uh, The numbers were low last year. Everyone has another option when they look at jobs. And so recruiting numbers were very low last year. And what we saw in this year's budget is all the services adjusted their recruiting numbers to reflect what happened in the past year. The 2024 budget for the Army looks at 452,000 active duty soldiers. Last year, they were looking for 473,000, but they fell 25% short of their goals last year. So it's adjusted to try and make it work this year. It's a similar situation for the Navy. They're looking at 404,000 sailors in 2024, and that's a drop from 411,000 that Congress funded last year. Overall, the Air Force wants an end strength of 324,700 personnel under the 2024 budget request, and that's a decrease of a little more than 600 people from last year. It's been an ongoing problem for all the services, as I said. Here's Defense Department Comptroller Michael McCord. I will say on the recruiting side, uh, I think you already probably know this, but these are the lowest unemployment rates in the 50-year history of the all-volunteer force. There has always been a correlation, an inverse correlation between the the, the, uh, job market on the outside and our ability to recruit. Uh, Last year, calendar year 22, 3.6%, again, the lowest unemployment rate in over 50 years. And it stayed that it's staying that low in the first parts of, of this calendar year. So that remains a tough environment. You wonder who's going to uh, staff all of those ships and airplanes and tanks and armored vehicles with those numbers dropping. It sounds like they could almost wish for a bit of a good solid recession to get people back into the uh, market for soldiers, sailors, Air Force and Marine members. And that's the uniform side of things. What about the civilian workforce? Well, one of the things the military is counting on overall is that 5.2% pay raise that's not just the DOD, but across government. And people at the DOD will get that pay raise. And additionally, military service members will see a 4.2 raise in uh, basic allowance for housing. Right. So that should maybe 
help the recruitment indirectly if people don't think they'll be impoverished if they go into the military? People are pretty concerned about inflation and wondering if that's really going to cover it. But yes, it is a significant raise. And the other big area for DOD is research and development. What are we learning about their priorities there? That's been another big priority in this new proposed budget. And let's just listen to Vice Admiral Sarah Joyner, Director of Force Structure, Resources and Assessment for the Joint Staff. She spoke earlier this week at a presentation on the budget for the DOD. The budget request aligns with the strategic guidance and balances department priorities to maintain a ready, lethal, and combat-credible joint force. It represents the largest procurement and R&D levels ever for the DOD. As Mr. McCord mentioned, the national defense strategy and our national leadership make clear that our highest defense priority is to protect the homeland and deter attack on the United States. That was Vice Admiral Sarah Joyner. And looking at some of the things that the money's actually going to be spent on as far as research and development, the Army is uh, looking at some of their top priorities are long-range hypersonic weapons and optionally manned fighting vehicles. The Air Force is looking for $5 billion more in, in research and development than they got last year. And they're building up their B-21 program of long-range bombers. And they're also looking to upgrade and develop the Sentinel system. That system replaces the ICBMs, and it's part of the nuclear triad. The Navy's got something similar going on there, um, more, more strategic arms. They're planning on building 2.4 submarines a year, one Columbia class, which is the ballistic missile submarine, and then one to two Virginia class submarines a year. And if we're selling them to Australia, they have to build up more than that to meet their long-term targets for shipbuilding. Then they're also building uh, surface ships, more submarines, logistic vessels, unmanned systems, and cyber warfare. So that's a lot of heavyweight activity for research and development. Did they mention artificial intelligence, by the way? That's been a kind of a growing area, not a big dollar number, but it's a growing area. Did not come up? It definitely did. Artificial intelligence and unmanned systems kind of go together. And that was another big trend that we saw in things they wanted to build and develop. Um, procurement kind of goes hand in hand with that. They're looking for $170 billion overall, which is $6 billion more than last year. And with that money, they're saying, yeah, we need to build all these things. But at the same time, we, we need to, of course, reform, reform the system. And they were talking a lot about multi-year contracts to try and make things go smoother. Here's Chief of Naval Operations, Michael Gilday. Procurement accounts are 31% of our budget. And there's a lot of dough there. Uh, and so there are ways to look for more efficiencies and then to shift those savings somewhere else. I'm interested in doing more of that. I'm interested in taking a deeper look at where and how we spend our money and where we might be able to make smarter choices. Well, that sounds like good boilerplate, but not a lot of specifics, I guess. Well, there's always a push to reform the system, and I, I guess you think every year this is the year they're going to do it. Well, there is a planning, budgeting, and execution commission that is doing its work with recommendations. Not not precisely procurement, but they still have, I don't know, 60 or 75 procurement reforms left over from the 809 commission left over from a few years ago. So lots of commissions looking at this year in, year out. But bottom line is numbers are on the rise. They certainly are. And the two requests I really heard loud and clear from Defense Department officials is contractors, please deliver on time. And Congress, please, 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 no CRs.
Right. Let's not hear about supply chain. I think that's getting kind of annoying to defense ears. I think I heard one officer say, everybody's got a tough job. Just deliver the goods when we say we want. Uh, Yeah, that's great. All right. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but 
How would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years. 
because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.